Welcome to the Hallmark Cafe. I'm Michael. And I'm Diane. Come on in. Your table is ready. Tonight, I'm gonna fall in love. Tonight, I'm gonna believe in love. Tonight, I'm gonna fall in love with you. Well, we're back in the cafe. It's a rainy day in the cafe. It is a rainy day in the today. cafe, yeah. So, which is unusual for here, but, you know. I know, but, you know, rain is good. Uh, I, we're thinking about all the actors working right now I know. up in Vancouver. It's raining. In the rain. Crazy. So we dedicate this episode to you. <laughs> a nice dry studio, and they're out in the well, rain. Well, we have a special episode. We've had the absolute pleasure of talking with two producers who have brought you what we guarantee are a whole lot of your favorite Hallmark movies. That is correct. Joel Rice and Michael Barbuto are with us in the cafe. This interview was so in-depth, Michael, we just had to make it two parts. We did. So a lot more work on your part, but, you know, that's, that's okay. True, it was I don't worth mind. it. We didn't mind. want to leave anything on the table, no. so to speak. So now, Joel Rice is president of Muse Entertainment, the company that has brought you incredible movies for Hallmark, like The Note, Taking a Chance on Love, An Old Fashioned Christmas, Marry Me at Christmas, Love Locks, Signed, Sealed, Delivered series. And the movies. Aurora Tea Garden series, The Gourmet Detective series. I'm so buying a set of these. Fixer Upper Mysteries, Martha's Vineyard Mysteries, A Shoe Addict's Christmas, A Tourist Guide to Love, Never Too Late to Celebrate, Catch Me If You Claws, and the newest mystery, hopefully a series to come for Hallmark, True Justice, Family Ties. And that's not even scratching the surface. That is correct. Joel has been a producer and executive producer on so many hits for Hallmark. We just had to find out what his secrets to making that happen are. And Michael Barbudo is an actor turned producer and has been working with Joel and Muse Entertainment for many years now, bringing an expertise of his own to the process. Now, these two genuinely love the movie making process, as do we. And it's obvious they love the Hallmark brand. And the movies they get to make. And, and it, what's really interesting to me is how much they brought that to the interview. And since we also love Hallmark right. movies, it was just a, a festival, a love festival. It was. It was, it was really fun. I think we could have talked forever. Yeah. <laughs> so. uh, but they don't do this all on their own. And we are about to dive in and learn a lot more about how it gets done. So let's join Joel and Michael at the table. Welcome to the Hallmark Cafe, Michael and Joel. Hello. Hi. We are so glad that you're here today on, on our little podcast. We just can't be more thrilled. You have been a part of, created, uh, produced, executive produced, acted in some of our very favorite movies. Many of our Absolutely favorites, our yeah. our favorite movies. Uh, now, Michael and I have a bet going on right now as yes. far as uh, how you met. I said it mm. probably was, Michael, you were a, an actor in The Note. Was that one of your earlier uh, acting yeah, jobs? Yeah, that was actually. Not only was that the, the first movie that Joel and I worked together on, I think that was my first like professional credit where I played cop number two. <laughs> and Joel, Joel was kind enough to cast me and well, uh, my, one, my one line. Well, that's that nice. Had. So now, as for our listeners, the note, of course, starred Jeannie Francis, and uh, she plays a, a journalist. McGinley. Yes, uh, the, Ted McGinley, and mm -hmm. she plays a journalist who finds a plastic baggie with crumbs and a note, and it evidently came from a, a very tragic plane crash in the bay near her home, and she finds it and decides to discover who the note is for. And it's a lovely movie. It's one of my favorites, actually. 
It's one of those movies where if it comes on and it's it just comes on and it's in the yeah. background or whatever, yeah. I, I have to stop and watch it. Now, it's Joel, good- is that the first one you did for Hallmark? It was, and it was the first time they were letting outside suppliers uh, provide the content. They had always worked with one gentleman for all the content who was uh, related to the ownership of it. And so this was the first movie they did outside of that. Wow, okay, that's cool. And then you made a couple of sequels to that movie too as, as well. Right? We did, we made yeah. three of them, yeah. yeah. Three total. Yeah. Well, let's jump back in history a little bit because I know that our listeners would like to know, and we would like to know. Uh, Joel, you're from Boston. I am. I was interested in the bet, though, because I don't think you Yeah, gonna... I was going to say. We won. <laughs> I won. I, don't... I won. Oh. She always well, no, wins. that's not how we met. You didn't win. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't how win. Hey, uh, okay. vindication. No, no. All right, so go so, ahead and tell us how you met. Sorry to disappoint, but neither of you will win, so no one owes anyone any money. <laughs> <laughs> that's if we... I keep losing that 10 bucks. <laughs> no, no, you didn't lose it. It's a, it's a draw. Nobody won. Okay. So um, just simply, not simply, but... Uh, that was the first time we worked together, but that wasn't how we met. I was on a plane reading a script. His dad was sitting across the aisle, not even next to me, but like across the aisle and said, oh, I see you're reading your script. My son's an actor, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and he's down, he's down, he's going to be picking me up. Would you, could, could you meet him? That kind of uh, thing, which my dad always used to do for me. So I was touched by it and was happy to meet Mike there. And then I, I, we, I first got involved with him professionally where I was selling a game show back in the day and that he got brought together all of his friends to pretend they were the contestants because when you try out for a game show, you have to play the game basically. And then I, um, because he's uh, from Canada, when I went to do the note, I brought him with me as my assistant and then also as cop number two. Now, he really wanted to play cop number one, but I, I just didn't feel true. his ass- was up to that second line, so <laughs> so we stuck with cop number two as a first try. Yeah, you got to start somewhere. That's Humble right. beginnings. That's right. So, yeah. Oh, that's funny. Oh, the that's one thing funny. I will say, I, I do want to add two quick addendums to Joel's story. When I first met him at LAX that day, now this is going back quite a ways. I don't want to say what year it was because it's going to date us, but we'll just say it was it was back when actors had hard copies of headshots and printed resumes and that kind of thing. And Joel said, send me your stuff. At that time, I was in acting school. I was about to graduate. Um, so I did. And to his credit, when most people, 99% of anybody else who says, yeah, yeah, send me your stuff, they would never get back to you, especially when they looked at my resume, which was basically a blank sheet. <laughs> and to his credit, he did call me. He did invite me to to play cop number two, as he said, as a little bit of real builder. And, you know, I was his onset assistant, so I could learn how, you know, everything worked and that kind of thing. Um, so that was, that was very, very generous. Of him. Absolutely. Well, he must have seen something in you. So what did you see in him, Joel? What did you see? <laughs> uh, no, I just, I, I just was taken with him. I mean, I really liked him. That's really what it was. I was drawn to him. I saw maybe myself. Um, five years earlier, I'll, I'll lie and say that's how many years earlier it was. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, and I, you know, I really related to his dad wanting to help his son because my dad was having my dad on a set ever was so embarrassing because like he would, he would, I would still be a kid in his mind. So like, how do you, he'd ask him, how do you think he's doing? You know, is he good at it? And then, you know, like that. Of course, my dad also wanted to be cop number two, cop number one. He was cop number one because he was better than Mike at it. No, but my dad was someone who always wanted to be an extra. 
and all that kind of stuff. So it's funny. He was good too. That's so he was great. good. I remember actually we did, he joined us pitching those game shows. And this is the other thing I wanted to say. The second addendum to Joel's story that I wanted to add was that he was very patient with me because I was horrible. I, I would lose sight of the fact that the game show is fake. We are pitching the show. So the people that, you know, the potential buyers would see how the game show would work. Whereas I would get very competitive. So when we were playing, I would be like, no, 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 hold on, hold on. It's still my turn. It's still my turn. And Joel would be like, oh, my God, Mike, like, for the love of God. That's not the point. The point is we need to show how the game show is, not for you to win this fake competition. So I remember the one time we did pitch with Joel's dad. Um, he was – he – I'm trying to remember if, if he was as competitive as I, Joel, or if he was a little bit more subdued. I feel like he wanted to be – but had a few years of wisdom on me. So he was, he was maybe able to kind of see the bigger picture and realize the purpose of why we were there. It wasn't just to win a fake game that had, you know, <laughs> no. Uh... <laughs> well, that certainly showed ambition. I mean, you really wanted to win. Yeah. So that was good. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, did, did the game show fly? Did anybody buy it? Uh, I did sell one game show. I don't know if it was the one that I, I think we definitely didn't sell the one Mike was involved with trying to help sell. Yeah. Because they were just, they just thought people would be too upset if they didn't win. Because Mike was crying <laughs> during the no, comp, being, his being competitive is good, right? Because then it looks like people are excited about it. Well, let's go back a little bit, and I won't. If if you don't want to talk years, we won't. But you left Boston and you went to L.A. and you started out wanting to act. That had you, I mean, that was the prime thing in your mind, right? Was just becoming an actor. Yeah. I went to Wesleyan University. I was in the summer of my junior year, and my best friend and I moved. Drove, drove out to, uh, we actually went for the summer, you know, like a college boys summer in LA when my brother lived, but I decided to audition for, uh, I was in a play while I was here, but I auditioned and, and further back than Mike, you used to be able to look up auditions in the Dramalogue magazine. So I looked it up and just as we were getting like about three weeks before we were supposed to leave, I had my first professional audition and I, and then we left to drive back to my senior year of college, drive cross country. And I got a, and my brother got a call cause that was, you know, it was a regular phone and you know, no call waiting, nothing. You had to keep the line clear for someone to reach you. Anyway, he called me. We we're in Utah saying that I had a call back. So I left my friend in Utah and flew back. And then there was down to five of us for each role. And uh, it was so exciting cause it was all my first professional audition. And then I asked when they would be, would this be the final audition? They said yes, and we'll be shooting in September. So I never told them I was in college or anything like that. Um, so then I flew back to Utah, and when we got to Kansas, there was a message at a Motel 6, because, you know, we didn't have any money or anything, um, saying that my brother left a message, you must be back here tomorrow. It's down to two of you. You have to fly back. Oh, my so gosh. I, so besides that I was driving my friend and my other buddies that we met there crazy, and my friend who was driving pretended that we were ran out of gas on the way to the back to the airport just to just to scare me a little bit um i did fly back and then i made him drive the rest of the way across country on his own because i wasn't risking another call or something and i did get that part it was my very first audition it was the the lead in a horror film in the 80s was that uh, final exam is that the well, one i'm not giving any titles out oh, okay. this. <laughs> <laughs> nobody should find this but anyway so you 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 did act for a while uh, and, then, and then you, you quit acting though, right? Well, I had a bachelor's degree in psychology and theater because, again, my parents didn't want me to just 
pursue acting, even though they really were very supportive. And I was, I was pretty successful as a, a, a in my small town, but I found it. Um, I, I wasn't having the level of success that I wanted. So I actually went back and got my master's in social work. And my happiest day was that I did a movie of the week for one day's work on the UCLA campus where I was going for my master's. So I got to go to school and shoot a movie. So that was, that was how I was able to do both careers for one day. Nice. But then ultimately I became, I got married or was getting married and gave up acting and became a social worker. So that was actually my next thing. I was a licensed clinical social worker. And you stayed in Los Angeles? Yeah. When you, uh, and Michael, we haven't forgot about you, so <laughs> hang in there. Um, no, I was, so, I'm, I was just waiting for my turn. I was also a social worker and got my degree in psychology. After cop two, he was a after social worker. Yeah, after cop number two. <laughs> I was social worker number three. I was therapist number four. Oh, Michael, you, you, uh, were you born in Toronto or... I was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, just, just north of Toronto in a little town called uh, Newmarket, okay. Newmarket, Ontario. I think I've seen mm-hmm. that on the map. You know, my, my Aunt mm-hmm. Evelyn was the mayor of Aurora for a while. That's right. No, oh, no. I lived in Aurora for many years. Did you? It's a yeah. great town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's right beside, right beside Newmarket. And actually, my wife is from another town about two hours west of Toronto called London, Ontario, yeah. mm-hmm. where um, Luke McFarlane is from. Ah, that's right, yeah. And, Fun fact, actually, the, the lead with Luke, uh, Atalia Rich, Ricci, who is in uh, Catch Me If You Claws, she's also from Newmarket, and she and I went to neighboring high schools, and we didn't realize this until we were shooting, but not only did we go to neighboring high schools, we knew so many of the same people. We must have gone to all of the same parties as kids. Like, she actually said to me, you know, I did the uh, the 23andMe. I urge you to do that because it'll tell you if anybody you're related to has done it as well, and our families are actually from a similar area in Italy, um, when her grandparents and my grandparents came over here. So she was like, I'm, I'm pretty sure we're probably she might cousins. be related. Isn't that wild? Yeah. 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 <laughs> we should, should look into it. So uh, when, you, when did you move to L.A., though? Uh, it was two, It was August of 2003. Okay. Did you have, a, like, uh, Joel, did you have a part waiting? or? I did not, no. No, I finished my undergrad um, at a university in uh, in Canada, in Ontario, and then um, realized that I'm a lousy actor because a bachelor's degree in theater doesn't make you a good performer. So I applied to a, a conservatory in Hollywood called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and uh, I was lucky enough to get in. So that was the, the impetus that sent me to uh, to L.A., um, and then, yeah, it was, I, I actually think it was probably the best thing I could have done as a transplant because you have, you're moving to a city that's very scary, that's very new. I think I was 22 years old. You know, you want to be an actor, which is a, you know, a bit of a uphill battle. Um, but everybody that I went to school with was in the same boat. They're all from out of state. They all want to be actors, and they all knew nobody. So you very quickly find your uh, your troop of compatriots, you know, that all have a like-minded cause. And to be honest, I'm in my 40s now. I still have a very close relationship with so many of the people that I moved out here with, you know, 20, 21 years ago now. Wow. Yeah, it's kind of like you you have your own. It's like a class, you know. You all kind of came yeah. in together as freshmen, and and then you go on. So that's really that's pretty cool. So you guys met. And then your first role, cop number two, you said? It was. It yeah, was. Yeah. I wanted Joel's. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize, Joel, but that was your first Hallmark movie either. Yeah. Jill, I noticed in your list of, of credits that you did a lot of movies that, that uh, were looking at social causes, social issues when you started back up as a producer. I thought that was very interesting. That's why I became a producer, truthfully. I, 
I remembered how many people saw me in final exam <laughs> and how many people were reached. And I would prefer to reach them with something a little more meaningful than that. I, I think I went to one horror movie once and it disturbed me so much. I watched mm. the birds on TV once and I couldn't Same. sleep for two weeks. I'm five years old, still afraid of birds. Me, me too. So <laughs> um, when you started producing, you know, Michael tries to explain it because he was a producer out there, but I don't... Um, you know, you went from acting to producing. Was there a moment in time where you, how, how did you get there? How did you get to do the producing job? What in your brain said, this is the job for me? Or did somebody like you did for Michael, somebody tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you'd be good at this? Yeah, and, and uh, no, that isn't what happened to the latter. I, I having, you know, I knew I wanted to reach more people than I was able to reach as a social worker. I did good work and I was a family therapist and I started a big brother program for disabled kids all over the country, but I felt like I could reach more people through the entertainment industry. And at that time, TV movies were very issue-driven, so that's what I focused on. And I took a class at um, AFI about that, and they said, you know, people really want true stories. So I had an idea for a movie. My first idea, because I was raised by, um, I took care of my mom growing up, so I was very interested in the role reversal between parent and child. So, But I was working uh, with people with that are neurodivergent, that's the word now, people with developmental disabilities. And I had heard that one of them had had a child, and I thought, well, that would be such an interesting way to depict role reversal. What about a person with, who is developmentally disabled who has a child who's neurotypical? And, um, and that would probably lead to the role reversal. So that was my idea. I found a true story to base it on, and then I got the LA Times to write an article about it, and then people wanted the rights to it, and I had the rights to it. So that's how I got in the business. Uh-huh. Okay, that makes sense. Did you have a lot of work <clears throat> coming from that point up until you got tapped to go to Muse Entertainment? I pitched, with, and I wanted to learn what producers were like, so I pitched things to different production companies. And I sold three things that I was involved in. I don't want to say I sold it, sold to CBS with three different production companies. And the person who was in charge of, uh, CBS in-house said, like, who, you know, she was about to make some deals to put, bring people in-house, give them producing deals. And she said, who's that guy in the corner? She always tells him the story. That was in all three of the last pitches that I liked. And so she gave me a deal at CBS. So, I mean, I, I feel like my, my, career, I, my career went pretty easily, but I did come at it as an already per adult person who was already had two professions. So it wasn't like I was you know, just starting out. So I went right, started out producing. I didn't work my way up to producing because you could become a producer if it was your idea. There was someone else that was in charge of the first movie, but the actor who has passed away re- recently, Treat Williams, f- was phenomenal to me and really introduced me to the, to the entertainment community after that. He kicked the executive producer off the set because he w- didn't feel he was being productive. And so I was the only person on set, and I had never done a movie before. So I, I stood behind the director just to learn. And he later told me in post, like, why were you watching me the whole time? I felt you were, like, <laughs> judging me behind you. And you were standing behind me the whole time. I'm like, oh, I, I didn't know where to stand. I was just trying to watch. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but because I was a social worker and the character was, that was the, uh, it was Tree Williams and Kelly McGillis, and he was playing a developmentally disabled adult and we had met the real person, and that was I had expertise in that. Treat always looked to me, kind of looked past the director to me behind him, and I, I didn't have the 
wherewithal to know like that's really not ideal for the director to feel like <laughs> the producers who the actors. So that I taught Mike that actually. I said, as much as you want to, you know, that you, you really ideally go through the director, even though we are filled with thoughts and we want them achieved and the director works for us, you know, it's hard for actors to get more than one person giving them input, you know. So we're able to do it when it's related to the material because we were involved in the development and in the TV movie business, the director wasn't, you know, so we know the material, we know what the network wants, but a lot of times we, we try very hard to keep the director in the power position and run it through him, which actors are always like, what are they whispering behind the monitor? And usually we're planning our lunch menu, you know, something like that. Yeah. That's true. It is, it is. I find it so interesting. You know, it's, it's so true. When I was acting and you're on the other side of the camera, you would look at what we call video village, right? And Michael, you might know this. I if, do, yeah. if, you know, you were a producer where you've got your director and your, your cinematographer, your, your DP, you know, your script supervisor, and then somebody like Joel or I standing there watching. And yeah, a lot of times you're just having a conversation, but I remember looking with blind fear and, you know, like, just like, it must be me. It must be me. And anytime it is something about, this scene, usually it's like, well, that looks a little bit dark or was that in focus or what are we doing with this shot? Or was it, you know what I mean? But it's, it's funny. So, you know, to Joel's point, like you, you always want to be mindful of the actor's plight and their, their role in it all, because it is a very difficult thing when you're in front of the camera and, you know, to, to compartmentalize everything and just focus on the task at hand. So we can, and it is the trickiest thing to, when, as Joel said, you know, you've got a million thoughts, you've got a million ideas, you want to tell them to do something a certain way because you're the one who's developed the script for six months. You're the one who knows the story more intimately than anybody else. But really, the conduit to the performer is through the director. You know, and it's it's kind of a, a sacred relationship that we as the producer, it's our job to kind of honor that. And there's a very, there's a distinct difference between a director who directs a movie and a director who directs television. In television, a director's coming in to an already formed machine. There's a showrunner, there's a team of writers, right? Like that's already a living, breathing thing. And you've got to come in with amazing ideas and impress everybody, but knock, don't knock anything off the shelf, you know, and then you're done. In a movie, a director is queen or king. You know, it's a very different dynamic. It's not the executive producer, it's not the showrunner like in television. So in a movie, you know, if the director is queen or the director is king, you know, you have to service the director to make sure that they are achieving the vision that they have for the movie. Now, a TV movie is different because that's kind of a hybrid between the two, right? So I think what Joel taught me, one of the most, one of the, one of many valuable lessons that I've learned working under Joel is that if you treat the director more like the, the latter, not the former, that's, I, I think you, it bears more fruit, you know? So our job, we try and facilitate a director's vision and really respect them as the one who, who runs the set, you know, um, the way you would on a feature film kind of thing. That makes perfect sense. That's, and that's very well, well said. Well explained. Yeah. Not bad for cop number two. Yeah, I know. It's really come up. <laughs> now, let, let's go on to talk about some of, some of the great movies that, uh, Joel, that you've done at Muse. And, that, and also, and I just want to go through some of them, and then we're going to talk about the ones you did specifically together. But uh, the Aurora Tea Garden series, fantastic series still to this day. They run marathons all the time. And, uh, you know, that with Honeymoon, Honey Murder, Till Death's West Part, How to Con a Con, Bundle of Trouble. Uh, were you on the set for most of this, uh, the filming, Joel, or is your role more uh, offset? My role cha has changed over time when I was... Earlier in my career, I wanted to be on set and needed to be on, insisted on being on set every minute of the day. 
by that point, I was president of Muse, Muse, Muse USA and had more responsibilities. In the case of Aurora Tea Garden, we had a, a very um, wonderful deal with a producer named Jim Head. So he really, he, that's how he and I met. We both wanted the rights to that story, to those books. And so he ended up coming to me, into Muse on the heels of that and for, for a while, for a long time. And he was really the one that oversaw um, Aurora Tea Garden. I oversaw um, Fixer Upper Mysteries. I would tend to be there the whole time when the situation called for it. That was starring Jewel. And so she was her, you know, she hadn't been acting. She had done a few acting things, but it was her foray, for, foray into more acting. And I wanted to be there also. Yeah. So, um, so I was there for that. And then I have another gentleman that works for me who's been with me a long time, Scott Clayton. So he, he often was, I would start it off if I had to move or we had more than one thing going at once. We always have someone on our team on set the whole time because we do care about every little detail and you know it's a cumulative effect of really having an eye on it when you know the material to get it to where they want it and and you know hallmark in this case if you're talking about hallmark is our bosses there are we're we're the supplier to them they're our client and we you know we have a long history with hallmark because we treat everyone with every single one with care care you know it also it seems to reason that uh you know, if, if somebody on set had a question, then they know somebody's there, you know. They, right, they and so that's another call I mean, like, obviously, we can answer those questions. And that just back to the, it's just such an interesting dynamic because I picture a director listening to this and saying, well, you did talk to the actor once in a while. And, and it's really because it depends on the director, really. You start out absolutely just the director speaking. To, that's how we do it anyway, uh, how I liked us to do it. And then some directors go in and say, well, Joel thinks. And I'm like, well, if you're going to say Joel thinks, then I might, I might as well say what I think. You know? Or they'll send me in and say, I'll give them the note. And they'll say, you go explain it. So it just really is yeah. about the honoring and respecting every director and giving them really you're there the the producer's job is to be everyone's to get the best out of everyone you know get, give everyone the best opportunity to do their best work and the, most importantly the director but the writer during development and you know just everyone the actors you know you want a safe environment you want to i mean people have i have worked with actors that are known to be complicated to work for or have a history of um, not behaving perfectly on set. And I've never really had that experience myself. And I believe it's the tone, setting the tone of the environment. Because really, I mean, Treat, he had that, he had, he was just so smart, you know, so he had opinions. We love that. We want that from an actor. We want them to also be invested, you know. So we just make it a safe environment. That's the goal for everyone. Yeah. Is that how you find it on, on the Hallmark sets, uh, Michael? No, I'm a tyrant. It's very much a dictatorship. <laughs> I um, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I think Joel's, Joel's 100% right in that spirit. You know, aside from wanting to create an environment that not only is nurturing and supportive, that brings out the best in everybody, it's collaborative. I mean, it's still art, right? It's an intersection of business and art. That's what you're making as a movie, a story that you're telling. And you, that only works if you get the best out of everybody. So I find more often than not, 
by toward the end of the first week, once everybody's kind of gotten comfortable with one another, you know, your director, myself or Joel, plus the leads, you end up having like a, a chat before and after every single scene, you know, where are we coming from? Okay, well, we already shot this. So what if we change the line to this and yada, yada. And, you know, sometimes that requires us to reach out to the writer and be like, you know, we're thinking about this. Can you write something else? Or we just do it on the fly. But the point is, is like I said, it's a collaborative effort and really, the way I always visualize it is like a relay race, right? The baton starts with Joel and I when we have the the that kernel, the initial idea. You know, through Joel's guidance, we work with the network to develop a pitch that becomes sellable. And nobody knows that more than Joel. Nobody is more successful at that than Joel. So then once we successfully get the movie set up at the network, you know, we attach a writer. Now the baton goes to the writer. The writer works on the outline, fleshes out the story, writes the script. Again, working in tandem in that collaboration with the network. Then it goes to the director, right? Then we enter into the pre-production phase. And that's when you get your whole team of people building out your movie and what this thing is actually going to look like. Then the baton gets passed again to the actors. Now the characters become, you know, theirs and they take ownership. We shoot it and then it goes to the editor, you know, and then the editor has to. So it's always going to somebody else. And as Joel said, it's our job to bring out the best in everybody because we're the only ones that are with it from the very beginning all the way to the very end until the day it airs on TV. What's that moment when you, I mean, do you get to the point where once you've shot it, you've shot it, then you have to just deal with what you have, right? So all yeah. your effort goes into making sure you get it. And then, are there, but are there times when you've had to have said, uh, we need to work on this part, it's not working? Honestly, I think it, Joel has taught me that, yeah, I, per, me personally, as, as an actor, as a, as a writer, as a producer, I never hit that pencils down phase. I, I could drive everybody nuts because I'm like, well, let's just look at it again. And like, maybe we could change this or change that or blah, blah, blah. But Joel has, has been instrumental in helping me realize that at some point you have to, you know, send your kid off to college kind of thing. And <laughs> you know, you go. It's, it's, it's good. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And in the end, the network is in charge. There's a round yeah. uh, turn it to them. Then we execute their adjustments, you know, and it's the beauty of collaboration that different people see different things, you know, and that's what's so successful about it. I mean, it's the reason why I also became a producer or stayed being a producer, having jumped from two other careers is was the first one that really felt fulfilled me fully in the long run, because there's so many, each project is different. There's so many different stages. I enjoy every stage of it. I have I want to help it do well, you know, in the end, I want to check on, you know, I like every stage of it. I love the editing stage, and especially now that I'm not on set for the whole time, all the time, that I do actually don't watch the daily so that I can be the fresh eyes for Mike or Scott um, when they've seen everything. And then I can say, well, we're, you know, like, we're, I'm confused. And they're not confused. They know the material so well. They don't see that something's confusing. But I'm like then the audience to some degree, you know, and the network yeah. and you know, so well, I was going to ask for our audience, uh, could you give us kind of a timeline from a production gets a go to where it's finished? How long does it take to, to see that process through? I'll let Mike do it, but the answer is, un this answer is uniquely Hallmark. It's not the case mm -hmm. everywhere or even generally. Yeah, and to... to to make it even more confusing, it, it completely varies from, from picture to picture. I mean, a lot of times if it's uh, beholden to a holiday, let's say like Christmas, right, and the movie gets set up later in the year, then they're going to need it in time for Christmas or whatever the particular stunt is that, you know, Hallmark is airing if it's for that particular year. So it uh, it, it changes from, from movie to movie. But I mean, 
typically it's it's not uncommon and Joel correct me if I'm wrong if from the time we get the official okay you're you're set up here we're in active development um, we could be shooting within six months five months of that initial you know offer so that includes getting the script written right mm-hmm. finalized yeah mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, a lot of times we don't get a completed script. As Joel said, you know, what makes Hallmark unique is that it's an idea that they will buy, right? So we've gotten pretty good at uh, crafting what that pitch looks like, and sometimes it's it's an original idea created by us in-house at Muse, and a lot of times it's ideas that come to us, you know, in the form of a pitch paragraph or, you know, a one-page pitch or a log line from another writer. Um, and sometimes it is a completed script, but, or yeah, book. Hallmark is one of the only... Or a book, yeah, uh, you know, source material, IP that we can develop something with with another writer. So it's, um, you know, there's all different ways of, uh, of where that initial idea comes from. I wanted, you had asked me earlier about how I came to be at Muse. So I just wanted to do a shout out to them as well, because so I went from being in a deal at CBS and NBC to going out on my own. And then there was an opportunity where Muse was wanting to really make a, they were doing production services and they really wanted to establish themselves in the United States. And they were my distributor, like they were who I used as a company when I was working on my own and asked me to join the company. And it's just been glorious for me because it's 15 years now, but I'm in, I'm in the States and they're in Montreal. So I have a lot of like feeling like I'm working for myself, but then I have them as a support system all the time. And I have their, you know, and it's incredible people that, you know, there's the magic of movie making is there's so many people that need to contribute. You know, that's the, the first day on set is just crazy how it all comes together. But Amuse, I mean, there are people that do every aspect of it, the legal, the accounting, the, the you know, every aspect of the job has a whole lot of people contributing. So it feels so great to be kind of on my own, but have the support, the financial support, the security, the, you know, the camaraderie of being at a, comp- at a company that can support you in that way. And they have. So we hope you've enjoyed part one of our interview with Joel Rice and Michael Arbuto. It just gave me much deeper insight and knowledge into how these these movies are made. It's true, and it made me nostalgic, you know, as we know, and I've mentioned before, I used to produce movies back in L.A. Oh, yeah. It just was let's, one of those things where I knew what they were talking about and what it's like to be on a set. I just It really brought I me know. back, so I really it, enjoyed that. And it reminded me of times like when we were up in uh, Vancouver, up on Montrose Street, when Michael Robeson, the fine director, yeah. noticed us, you know, probably drooling on the gawking. other side of the street, gawking. <laughs> I, and, and, right. But he came across, he got something out of his car, he looked at us and said, you know, hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> like, uh, uh, we're, we're watching, watching you make a movie. <laughs> hoping we don't get kicked out. And he said, well, why don't you come over and you can you can hang out in Video Village and watch and really see how it's done. It was we're a, like, are you kidding me? It was a magic moment. It was like being picked for the ball. And this is know? a movie with Tyler Hines and Joy yeah. Lenz. Adam Slowinski was the DP in the village yep. controlling really everything. Really nice guy. And, and uh, we really got a close-up look at it. And so when he was talking, when Michael Barbuto was talking about the video village i'm like i could just picture it i can just picture the whole thing i know so that was that was quite an experience so i hope you'll come back uh for the part two of our interview with joel and michael exactly we had a great time and i hope you did too so in the meantime don't forget to leave us a review on apple Podcasts. we got a couple of nice reviews lately please uh, check out those reviews and uh, leave one of and your leave own leave one of your own yeah. and i think it should be a competition yeah. who can leave a nice 
because yeah. it'd be pretty tough to beat the ones we've got. I know. Which we, we really appreciate and that. And join us on Instagram. We're up to today, up to 225, which wow. is exciting. Every time I cl- it clicks up one, I get I get really excited thinking somebody else found us. Yay. Yay. They want to they want to check us out. So, uh, you know, if you haven't joined our Instagram, follow us on Instagram. We'd appreciate that. We got the old um, Facebook group happening yes, too. Yes, we so. do. I might I think I might put a link to that in the Instagram post yeah. next time so that in case somebody really wants to find us but maybe they can't find us i don't know but it's a private group so we can come in and have discussions and you'll see some clips that you might not see in other places um and it's it's just a building community right now right but uh, but the nicest people you'd ever want and don't forget about our music you can check us out at thekillings.com our music uh, is uh there for you to listen to and widely available and if you are interested in licensing some everywhere. of it uh, we we can do that too so we do that too we so own every everything we do everything we have we own so anyway so that's it for this edition of the hallmark cafe where love is always on the menu hallmark cafe is a copyrighted program produced by high horse productions our theme song was written and performed by diane killen and the hallmark cafe illustration was created by daniel killen Be sure to find Hallmark Cafe on Instagram and check out our Facebook group.